kaai nānai luna o kaai kio e laau. Ahea haia mea o ka ulu noia. Mahalo ka huiho ana mai me mākou ma kaleo o ka uluau. E nānā kākou i ka hana no e au o ka oihana mahi ai i ka ai o luna. Aloha to everyone listening as we continue our journey on Kaleo Kauluau, learning about traditional, sustainable practices on Hawaii Island today. Lei just made poetic references to one of the most amazing trees, fruits, and staple crops of Hawaii, one that also connects us to the island Pacific of Mwananuyakea and beyond, the ulu, or breadfruit. As the Olalonoeau tell us, ulu is a food that requires that we both shift our gaze upward to catch sight of it and that we harvest it with a stick, preferably one that is not too short. I'm Drew Cap, And I'm Lady Mello. Velina Mai. Welcome to Kaleo Kauluau. Aloha, Drew. Aloha, Lei. I'm happy to announce that we have another practitioner of sustainable traditional practice here with us today to share his ike and mana'o with all of us about indigenous agroforestry with special attention to the ulu or breadfruit. Lei, would you please introduce our mea kipa or guest? Hiki no. Noah Kekueva Lincoln is a scholar and practitioner of indigenous agriculture. He has had the opportunity to experience and learn from traditional growers, including First Nations peoples from Northern, Central, and South America, and throughout the Pacific. In his studies at Yale and Stanford University, and now as a professor at the University of Hawaii, Noah seeks to demonstrate the sustainability and productivity of indigenous agricultural methods to the global scientific community. He is the founder of Mala Kalu'ulu Cooperative that is working to revive the traditional breadfruit belt in the Moku Okuna. That's wonderful. Let's go over to Noah now. Aloha, Noah. <laughs> Welcome to the Kaleo Kaulua podcast. We're really excited to hear from you and learn about indigenous agroforestry and the importance of ulu as a vital component of sustainable agriculture on Hawaii Island. Um, mm. So mahalo nui for being here with us today. We're really happy about it. Hey, mahalo. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Mahalo. Aloha e Noah. It's so nice to finally meet you. <laughs> Mahalo nui for joining us to speak about a subject that is near and dear to your heart. And I just was hoping that you can give us an introduction to agroecology. Sure. Yeah. Um, it is something we're really passionate about. Um, you know, I would say it's it's not the norm. Uh, you know, when a lot of people think about agriculture or maybe the study of agriculture in um, a lot of the world is a very chemistry-based approach. It's very mathematical, right? You know, nutrients plus water plus sunlight equal these yields. And I think that has taken us down a path of, of where our industrial agricultural system is headed today. Um, you know, very high tech, you know, very controlled environment um, where we manipulate everything about what goes into our plants and our food. Um, and agroecology is really a perspective that our agriculture, um, our agricultural systems are really ecosystems. Mm -hmm. They're the land expressing itself. That's the land doing what the land wants to do. And we're, we're guiding it towards a, a, a particular expression in a way. Um, but the land is, has its own 
um, you know, I like to say the land has its own emotions. It has its own mana, right? It, it wants to be something. And so you can't just do anything on the land, right? You can't go into a desert and plant a tree mm. um, or it's very, very hard. <laughs> just like it's very hard to go into a rainforest and clear cut it and plant rice, you know? And so agroecology is, is really the consideration of that, that um, ecological direction the land wants to go and working with that, um, trying to be efficient, let the land do the work, let the land be what it wants to be, but in a way that provides us what, what we need as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, to me, yeah, agroecology is this, this, um, this synergy, this relationship between you know, what we need as, as humans and as societies and as cultures, um, but also what the land needs and what the land wants to be and, and bringing those two things together. Instead of forcing it, yeah, instead of forcing it to, like how you mentioned, grow something that wouldn't normally be in that space. Exactly. You know, and, and Hawaii is probably the most amazing case study of agroecology in the world. You know, we, we talk time and time again about how diverse Hawaii is. You know, on Hawaii Island alone, we have two-thirds of the Holdridge life zones. Two-thirds of the world's ecology is represented here on the Big Island. You know, we have deserts. We have uh, dry forests. We have rainforests. We have cloud forests. We have bogs. Um, we have all this ecological expression and therefore, our ancestors, when they came and were utilizing this landscape, um, they had to adapt to all this diversity. And they had to find out how they could, could um, grow food in this, this vastly different um, ecosystems. And so while we often uh, state, you know, Hawaii is the most ecologically diverse place in the world, what we don't further make the connection of is Hawaiian agriculture was probably the most diverse agroecological systems in the world. And when you look at what our ancestors did, right, we had, you know, flooded irrigated systems where we grew kalo in, in kind of like rice paddy form, right, our lo'i kalo. We had, um, you know, intensive dryland systems where we grew sweet potato that in all reality, looked a lot like the Midwest, you know, row after row of, of uala, of sweet potato. We had agroforestry systems that um, looked a lot like the, the, um, the forest systems of South America um, and everything in between. And um, that's a lot of what we're trying to do is to bring appreciation and, and understanding of how our ancestors adapted to these really different environments in terms of growing food um, and growing food sustainably over many centuries. So people had to have a, a very deep understanding of, of place, right? I mean, and still do, to be able to succeed in, in, in agroforestry and agroecology. Um, just thinking about the, the, the role of people in the, in the equation too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, yeah, and that would <laughs> take us down quite a tangent, but um, 
you know, a, a, a lot of times when we talk about traditional practice and, and revival of traditional practice, um, I try not to emphasize the actual practices too much, um, but emphasize the methods that led to those practices, mm -hmm. right? The ability to kilo, the ability mm -hmm. to observe your environment, um, really pay attention to how it's operating, what the cycles are in that system, how the wind and the water and the nutrients move through that system. And if you pay attention to those same um, observations, you will come to your own practices that to me, are, are indigenous. Mm -hmm. You know, indigeneity to me is understanding your place and adapting to your place. It's not just 100% mimicking the practices of our ancestors, but it is mimicking the, um, again, the methods, the way of being that led to their practices. Mm -hmm. um, because our ancestors were not static. Um, they, they had to adapt to changes. Some of those changes were natural. You know, they, they were here for centuries. There was climate change while they were here. Um, some of the changes were self-induced. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors did cause changes on the landscape. And in some cases, those had feedback mechanisms that changed the way that landscape operated. And they had to adapt. So their practices weren't static. It doesn't make sense for our practices to be static in, oh, we need to copy what they were doing two, three hundred years ago. No, we need to copy the, the process that led them to do what they were doing 200 years ago. And that will allow us to adapt in an appropriate way um, to, to where our landscapes are going today. Well, that's very much the part where you're building that relationship with mm. place and with Aina and what might work in one location definitely might not work in the, in another one across the Pai Aina. So that, right. that's important piece is, is building that relationship. Mm -hmm. So Noah, with that, the importance of the process in mind, can you share with us a little bit about the history of agroforestry in the Hawaii context? Mm. I, so... We often like to think about what was Hawaiian or especially indigenous agriculture um, at the point of contact, you know, at this, this really an end point of, of our um, undisturbed uh, relationship with the land. Um, but we, we didn't start there. Right? We, we, we evolved to be in that place. And when you look at a lot of the very early mo'olelo, the early stories about um, our ancestors, um, you find a lot of stories that, uh, to me, indicate really strongly that our ancestors really started with agroforestry. Um, you hear stories about the, the mu'ai mai'a, you know, the forest dwelling people that, that basically subsisted on bananas. And if you imagine, you know, for a second, um, possibly being on that first va'a, that first canoe that, that arrived in our islands, and you step off the, the, um, the canoe after a long ocean voyage, and you're in Hawaii, um, 
and that those untouched Hawaiian islands were forested all the way down to the coast. And so let's just say you hopped off in Waipio Valley, beautiful deep valley, lovely stream. At the pinnacle of Hawaiian agriculture, you know, at, at the, the point in time when, when Europeans finally arrived in the islands um, centuries and centuries later, Waipio Valley was a vast network of, of lo'i, of basically terraced uh, paddies where they diverted the river, flows through, and, and were cultivating kalo. But to get to that point took a tremendous amount of, of effort. Um, you had to build those terraces, lots of rock work. You had to engineer the canals, the alwai that diverted the water and brought it down. You didn't just hop off the va'a and start <laughs> building lo'i. You only got 20 people with you, 60 people, I don't know. Um, and so um, when you look at the first, the stories that, that come from those first generations of our ancestors, um, it seems very clear to me that they were purely reliant on these agroforestry systems. Um, because it, it, again, it takes energy to cut down a forest, to clear that land, to do all of that. And so instead of, of, of immediately starting to do lo'i, you work with the forest um, to produce your food. Um, and so again, those early generations um, talk a lot about uh, ma'ia, about banana because those grow within a forest system. You can go plant my, uh, in the forest canopy, they'll grow, you get your bananas, you have um, some good starch, some good carbohydrates to keep you going. And um, as you move forward in time, you start to transform that forest. Um, you need firewood, you need wood to build your hale, your houses. So you're starting to cut down um, some of the native forest that's there. And you don't just cut it down and do nothing. You start to replace it with the crops that, that you want to grow that are useful to you. Um, so you start planting ulu, the breadfruit, you know, kukui, the candlenut, um, ohia'ai, the mountain apple, um, to replace that forest that you're, you're taking away. And over time... You know, these forests evolve from, from a native forest to a, a type of forest that is mostly comprised of useful crops. Um, and for, for many generations, um, I believe that our ancestors um, did this type of forest conversion where you're kind of going from a, a native, you know, uh, lowland forest to um, some sort of agroforestry system where that forest is now producing food, uh, producing oil, producing medicine, producing timber, producing all the things that, that you need to, to survive and to thrive as a, as a society. Um, and then that allows you to build up your population, you know, to, to get a labor force, to get some, some uh, uh, you know, organization. And only when you have enough people and enough labor can you start to take on some of these larger efforts of, of building lo'i or, or other systems. Um, so when we look at, at Waipio or, or any of our big river valleys, it's very likely they started as agroforestry systems and slowly transferred 
into more productive, more modified systems, um, such as lo'i kalo, such as, as taro lo'i. Um, that is not to say that agroforestry lost its place, um, or that's not to say that agroforestry only had a role early on. Um, Again, if you think about, oh, I'm on the first va'a, I'm hopping off on these islands, you're going to settle in the, the prime locations, right? You got your choice. <laughs> um, you know, you're not going to go settle the desert first thing. You're going to settle the nice fertile river valleys. The momona places. The aina momona, ay, the fat land that's going to provide and feed. Um, but as our population grew and our people spread out across the land, they started occupying, again, different ecosystems that had different opportunities and different constraints of what we were able to do with that land. Different expressions. Different expressions, absolutely. Um, and so a lot of those lands, um, especially here in Hilo um, and in many of our windward locations um, where we get a lot of rain, um, rain is, is a double-edged sword in terms of agriculture. Obviously, we need water. We need vaya to grow plants. Um, but too much rain it, it depletes the soils. All that water passing through the soils, um, it picks up all the good stuff and it washes it right out to the ocean. So here in Hilo, if you clear some land and you expose the soil and you plant kalo, you might get a good crop the first year, maybe the second year, third year, fourth year. But over time, all that rain coming down is, is washing all our nutrients out. And eventually, it can't sustain um, that type of production. It can't sustain, you know, agriculture as the Western world thinks of it in terms of, of short-term annual crops, right? When you look at our global food source, they're almost all short-term annual crops, right? Rice, wheat, potatoes, corn, cassava. Um, all of them are, are, are um, annuals. They, they live for a year, they die. You replant. Um, and in many of our Hawaiian ecosystems, um, because of the ecology, it simply can't support that type of, of production. And in those locations in particular, um, tree crops are, are pivotal in terms of, of what that land can support, the expression that land wants to be. It wants to be a forest. Um, and this is because... Um, as a tree crop grows, it's, it's taking up nutrients from deeper in the soil, it's pulling them up to the surface, it's storing them in its trunk and its branches and its leaves, and then it's dropping those things back down to the surface and it's completing that nutrient cycle. And then those branches and leaves break down and go into the soil, but then, oh, they're caught up by the roots again and brought back up. And you have these beautiful cycles of nutrients where they're not all washed out to the ocean, 
but they're they're accumulated and and built up over time in in the forest and that allows high levels of of productivity in a forested ecosystem but once you cut that forest down you break that cycle mm-hmm. and all those nutrients disappear and you try to crop your kalo and eventually it fails and so especially in our our um our wet windward locations um agroforestry was a critical adaptation to the expression of the land it was it was um really one of the only forms of agriculture that could be sustained over centuries um on those landscapes and so over time as our our ancestors spread out and started occupying more and more places you know hey the rich fertile valleys yes you can do lo'i you know the the leeward slopes of our mountains where there's not as much rain and there's nice fertile soil yes you can do intensive kalo and and sweet potato production but in a lot of these windward soils um agroforestry is what what you had to do it's the only um truly sustainable option in those systems so what would you say is your star player in this um, <laughs> agroforestry <laughs> system, especially for Hawaii Island? Mm, yeah, so the, the star player um, by far is breadfruit, is ulu. Um, you know, one of our, our ancestral crops that was brought to the island, um, you know, today is, is often described as a tree potato, um, are compared to a potato, which which I hate, because <laughs> um, I think it does it a disservice, you know, um, when when we try to liken it to to a... liken it to anything else. I mean, breadfruit is breadfruit, and it's an amazing crop, um, hugely productive, um, uh, very high in carbohydrates, so a great source of energy, um, and yet it is a fruit. And so it's, it's a good source of a lot of vitamins and minerals um, as well. And um, so in many cases, you get these, these um, vast breadfruit forests um, that were uh, um, hugely productive and did not require a tremendous amount of labor. Um, you know, you go out. You plant your tree, <laughs> the tree grows and it gives you food. Uh, and a lot of places in the Pacific, uh, um, as well as here in Hawaii, Ulu is often referred to as a, a gift of the gods because of that, because it's, it's this low investment, um, but really high return in terms of what it gives you over time. Well, and we have Mo'olalo to, to share, to show that, right? We have that association with Ku mm. and how he gave of he gave himself to to give to his family and that were starving so i mean we have that tie spiritually with that food source i and something that i'm really interested in i associate so there's that whole um ulu belt in kona mm. and that seems like its presence seems really intriguing to me and i i often think about you know what are the what are the conditions that, you know, have allowed that to develop and be such an important part of the historical, ecological landscape of Kona? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know too much about it, but I, I'm very curious about it. So, yeah, when we think about the zones in Hawaii where 
ulu or, or breadfruit really excelled, um, or if we think about the if we think about the ecosystems in Hawaii where agroforestry was the the optimal choice, the the best practice to do on the land. Um, Hawaii is a little unique in the Pacific in that when you go to the South Pacific, you have um, islands that are much older, uh, much smaller, much steeper. And so if you go to Tahiti, you know, the Marquesas, um, you know, a lot of the Micronesian islands, um, Ulu is, is it, <laughs> you know, those old steep islands, um, a lot of, a lot of what those islands can support is agroforestry. And so when you're in the Marquesas or Tahiti, um, Ulu is the, the dominant staple. And you see that in the, um, uh, in the, not only the usage of the crop, but also the, the infrastructure they built around it. Uh, so when you go to, to, to Marquesas, there's these huge fermentation pits, right? Because ulu, um, breadfruit, it is a fruit. And like most fruits, it's seasonal, right? So you get a, 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 year, a time of plenty during the year and then an off season. And if you're reliant on, on breadfruit as your, your sole staple, um, you have to find a way to preserve it. So you have a steady food supply throughout the year. And so in the, a lot of the South Pacific islands, you get these big fermentation pits where during the ulu season, you, you peel it, you core it, you soak it in salt water, and then you ferment it in these pits that you can um, uh, preserve ulu for actually for many years. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we don't see that here in Hawaii. Um, and so ulu played a different role for us than it did in a lot of the South Pacific. And again, this relates back to agroecology. Our younger islands uh, here on Hawaii Island, we have these beautiful, young, sweeping volcanic plains. You know, we have deep river valleys. Um, we were able to do a lot of other forms of agriculture where we could crop a lot of taro. We could crop a lot of sweet potato. And so we didn't become as reliant on breadfruit as a lot of our, our South Pacific cousins did. Um, but that's not to say that ulu wasn't really important here and played really pivotal roles in, in the evolution of our, our society and our people and our culture. Um, and I think one of the, the really great examples of that is... Um, the, the Kalu'ulu, um, which, which some elders have told me is, is supposed to be Kaulu'ulu, or literally the breadfruit grove, um, but was a vast um, uh, planting of breadfruit in the Kona region um, on the leeward slopes of Hawaii Island, uh, 18 miles long, um, about a half mile wide, so nine square miles of, of ulu. And, um, you know, the, the mo'olelos that, that we found and, and the way that, that we've interpreted them, um, I really associate that belt with Umi, uh, one of our, our chiefs. Um, 
And so if we go back to, to thinking about, oh, the first va'a, and where's the first place you're going to settle on Hawaii Island, it is probably Waipio. Beautiful, deep, rich valley, lots of fresh water, fertile soil, tremendous production. And so Waipio was the seat of our kings and our ali'i for, for generations, um, including Umi's father, uh, Liloa. And um, when Umi um, took over power and, and became a leader in his own right, uh, he moved his royal court and, and where he lived um, to Kona, to a leeward location. No running streams, no deep valleys, um, just these young volcanic plains. And um, again, the way, the way I've interpreted some of the mo'olelo is that um, Umi, who is, who is actually born a commoner, um, born to a, a farming family, uh, when he came into power and he moved to Kona, um, that is the time it seems that that large breadfruit belt of Kona emerged and, and became um, a feature of the landscape. And when we look at some of our um, ceremonies and practices, you know, uh, for instance, uh, the Makahiki ceremony, which is a um, very important, you know, uh, annual ceremony that that coincides very well with the seasonality of Ulu. Um, one of the practices is is the shaking of breadfruit in this net. Um, almost like a game. And if, if the breadfruit um, are so plentiful that they bounce out of the net, it's a good sign that, you know, the next year's harvest is going to be um, a tremendous harvest. And you see all these, these associations coming out of Kona with breadfruit that talk about prosperity and, and um, you know, kind of... Um, success and, and planning, like looking to the future, to me, um, really seems that this breadfruit belt of Kona was a really important source of political power. You know, when you look at mana, when you look at, at, at an individual's power, a lot of it is defined by his, his or her ability to provide for others. Mm-hmm. Right, it, you're not powerful on yourself, right? You're powerful if you get, you know, a couple hundred guys behind you, right? Um, and and yeah, you know that that bounty, that extreme abundance that came from from the establishment of this breadfruit grove, um, seemed like it gave tremendous power to to Umi and to the region. Um, and that continued on, right, and until you know Kamehameha, um, who also had his his royal court in in Kona, um, and you know is the ali'i who who conquered the islands, who who had that yeah that abundance and that power and that that um, ah all that good stuff that, that <laughs> came from uh, to me a lot of that came from from Ulu. It's fascinating when we look at, at the situation of that belt on the landscape. 
Um, and this is is where I kind of geek out on on some of this stuff. Um, because when you, if you were down in the ocean in Kona and you're looking up the landscape, um, you look across this huge ecological gradient, you know, down by the coast, it's quite dry, mm -hmm. you know, it's a shrubland, you know, grassy, um, you know, really drought tolerant plants that, that grow. And, and as you move up the landscape, you get a little wetter and wetter and wetter until you get way up the mountain and you start to hit the rainforest. And so you go through this amazing ecological transition on the slopes of Kona. And you can literally see how our ancestors adapted to that ecology up the landscape. And they divided that landscape up in terms of, of how they saw the land. And those lowland plains, the kula, um, was really where they they emphasized their resource crops. Mm -hmm. You know, things like hala, um, pili, uh, ipu. You know, so things that are used for weaving, for for calabash, for for bowls, um, things that if you have a bad year and they die. <laughs> It's not the end of the world. You know, it would be nice to have a new mat this year. It would be nice to have a new bowl, but we're not going to starve, right, if those things die. And as you move up the coast um, or move up the slopes, sorry, then you get to that Kalu'ulu, that breadfruit belt in kind of the, the mesic zone where it's not too wet, not too dry, kind of right on the cusp. But right? just right. Huh? Just right. <laughs> um and um, yeah, to me, that area is not quite wet enough for Kalo and Walla um, consistently. You could plant it there, but on a bad year, it probably dies. On a wet year, it probably grows. Um, but the trees, right, they're a little more resilient. They can handle a little bit more variation. The fluctuation. Um, the fluctuation year to year. And so you have that breadfruit belt in that kind of iffy zone. Um, and it again, it provided all this extra abundance. And then as you move further upslope, you got into the apa'a. Um, and that's the, the sweet spot, man. That's where you're really focused on your kalo, your sweet potato, your yams, your ma'a. Um, that was clearly the bread basket. Um, and then another zone above that, the Ama'u, um, was kind of planted within the, the native forest zone. Um, but you saw how our ancestors, again, really utilized the landscape for, for what it could do. And, you know, took the sweet spot and they, they got what they needed out of the sweet spot. And then in that kind of iffy zone, you know... Um, they planted all this amazing agroforestry that was just kind of the icing on the cake. And, you know, on a good year provided so much abundance um, that, that really allowed for um, our ancestors just, just to live a good life, you know, and, and to be... Um, to thrive. To thrive, yeah. <laughs> what kind of trajectory do you think that that... Um, Kalu'ulu has has followed over the years, like mm. you know, taking us up to the present. Um, what's what's happening with it now? Yeah, or ulu cultivation in general on the island. So that's a great question. Um, and the Kalu'ulu today, um, 
or what was the Kalaulu 200 years ago is, is today essentially the Kona coffee belt. And when you drive past, past these coffee plantations or, or coffee farms, um, you know, it's essentially a monocrop of, of coffee. And because you've broken that nutrient cycle, because you've broken that, that um, beautiful uplift that is associated with the trees, um, you need to supplement that. And so in, in these coffee farms, you're out there throwing fertilizer um, to try to, to keep the plants healthy and growing. Um, and our farm is, is located right in the heart of, of the Ulu Belt, of the Kalu'ulu. And we started restoring this, this traditional system. Um, and so we have this um, wonderful overstory of, of breadfruit, um, in the understory, we have things like maia, um, bananas, and noni um, down at the ground. We have uh, kalo, um, olena, or turmeric. And what we've seen, even in a short time period, is just this, this proliferation of, of soil quality, of soil nutrition. And for us, it's been a big validation that... Um, you know, what our ancestors were doing on that landscape, again, was kind of ideally adapted. It, it, um, Kalamai, when I, you say we, who, who is we? Ah, uh, <laughs> um, we is many people. <laughs> we is, um, you know, my ohana, my family. Um, we is also my ancestors for whom we would, not be here today. Um, but we is also a whole bunch of people we partner with. Um, so for instance, our farm um, called Malakala Ulu is structured as a workers cooperative. Um, and what that means is people who come um, and partner with us and, and work on the farm, um, they earn ownership of it. Um, and they become, in every practical and legal sense of the word, an owner of, of that land and of that project. Uh, and we have really tried to be um, inclusive, to draw people in. And at the same time, we have tried to... And I don't know if this is a good or bad thing, <laughs> but it's what we've done. But we, we've really tried to find models that work within our, our modern economic system. When we started our farm, we had a lot of discussions about this, um, a lot of, of efforts to bring back traditional agriculture, our, our nonprofits, you know, that um, maybe subsidize the, the agriculture with, with education, um, and, and other activities, which is super important. Um, but one of the things we wanted to do was to show that our traditional systems can stand on their own two feet and, and can be just as productive and, and um, have a role to play in, in today's food system. So yeah, rather than just have people come and volunteer for us um, as a nonprofit, 
uh, we have people come and and work towards ownership, work towards having a stake in that property, and um, yeah, and have a, a role in the decision making and the um, you know have a share of of what comes out of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really take some ownership of it, and yeah, some of that was was came from from us seeing a lot of young people today who who really want to farm, like really want to be connected to their food and, and where their food comes from, um, but don't necessarily want to be farmers, don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to be tied to that that lifestyle. And so this model we were trying to put forward as a, a workers co-op was to um, yeah, allow people to to farm and be as engaged in their food as they want to be, um, have, have skin in the game, have a stake in the game, but not be, you know, fully <laughs> committed to that, that farming lifestyle, which, which is a tough, a tough lifestyle. It's hard work. Um, it is hard work and underappreciated and Definitely. underpaid and, and, you know, Kako'o. yeah, <laughs> kills me that, you know, you know, we go to the store and it's like, oh man, you know, three bucks for a head of lettuce or, you know, whatever, $2 a pound for Kahlo. Oh man, I'm not going to do that. And then they go walk around the corner to Starbucks and drop like six bucks on a mocha frappuccino. And it's like, well, you know, where's, We're out where's of our priorities in <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Small kind tangent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that especially during the pandemic and how should I say, I think more people sought and made that connection with food with the onset of the pandemic and you couldn't find Mm-hmm. You couldn't find soil. You couldn't find cinder. You couldn't find anything. And then all these people just got happier because <laughs> they had gardens growing, you know. And and then with that, it sparked, I think, more further interest in different areas. And I think it's if you can say there was anything that good came, anything good that came out of this time that we're in, I would say that it's a lot of people started gardens. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think... COVID was a trigger a little bit, but I do think there was growing momentum. You know, I think um, our younger generations are growing up in a time of, of environmental peril mm-hmm. and are, are hyper aware of, of the issues. Um, and I think that's brought a lot of attention to the, the dramatic impacts of our food system and the way that we're growing food now. Um, and that, you know, a recognition that, you know, industrial monocropped agriculture has been very singularly focused, you know, on providing the cheapest food with the least labor possible, um, at which it's been extremely successful, um, but at the cost of a lot of other things, you know, at the cost of environmental health, at the cost of human nutrition, at the cost of our relationship with the land. Mm-hmm. And I think people are, are um, globally are, are starting to become um, much more conscious of, of these type of impacts and, um, you know, wanting 
are starting to look towards alternative solutions, um, starting to really look at what our ancestors have done, not just in Hawaii, but around the world to, to have more sustainable food systems. And I think that's in that sense, what we've been talking about today, you know, agroecology, you know, adapting to, to the land, you know, agroforestry, the use of, of tree crops and uh, to, to recognize environmental benefits. Um, I think those things are, are critical parts of the solution moving forward. Um, it's just always a question if <laughs> collectively we're going to make, what choice are we going to make, right? Um, yeah, no, I mean, it feels like, um, you know, what you're saying is, you know, I mean, I think it's something that we've observed too, um, especially with our younger generations, that consciousness, you know, of which you speak, of our relationship with the land, of environmental health globally and locally on this island and elsewhere. Um, and it's inspiring to think that maybe things are going to be a little bit different in the future thanks to the newer generations who are tapping into, you know, ancestral knowledge and, and that relationship with please too. Um, yeah, it just makes me, it makes me be full of hope, but also I think that we all, we all recognize the, the political economic landscape that we live in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I guess I would, I would wonder how we can plow through that, those obstacles that are in place kind of structurally, I guess, in Hawaii, mm -hmm. what could, what could we do to, you know, reestablish, reinvigorate, reinvigorate, revitalize these incredible agroecological systems mm -hmm. on, a, on a larger scale, on an island scale. Yeah. So, I mean, our approach has been really trying to, to hit all angles. <laughs> you know, that I think there are a lot of, of people and efforts that are, are ready <laughs> and, you know, want to do a food forest in their backyard. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we try to support that in, in every way we can. And we also try to support, um, you know, the more incremental steps that, that some of our more commercial growers are, are willing to take. Um, and so, you know, we, we've, um, uh, worked very closely with the Hawaii Ulu Producers Cooperative um, to, uh, you know, really take a more commercial perspective on it, you know, um, get people, get our indigenous crops back into our, our food systems, um, you know, and recognizing that farmers, you know, are bound by the, the same rules, the socioeconomic rules that we all are, and, and they need to make money and, and um you know, need to support themselves and their families. And so, you know, we, we're building out tools for, for them as well, you know, working with companies that um, are building the economic models that, that show there are, are ways to do this that, you know, it's not the full food forest, but it's, it's a step in the right direction, you know, moving towards diversified crops instead of, of a monocropped um, uh, agriculture, um, you know, incorporating more tree crops instead of all annual crops. And, and again, kind of trying to build the tools, you know, both the, you know, kind of physical tools in some cases, you know, uh, uh, things like um, the 
breadfruit harvesters or, or, you know, the knowledge that goes into appropriate pruning or, or, you know, if you're, man, if you got 20 acres of ulu, <laughs> Uh, it's a tremendous amount of work, you know, and you're not going to climb up 500 trees to go harvest them. So you got to, you know, you got to learn to keep them low. You got to, you got to prune them. You got to, you know, know about the nutrient management of those trees. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we, we try to support both the incremental steps and, and the big steps, you know, and, and provide opportunities for engagement along the whole spectrum and just recognize that any change that's made, it's, it's going to be slow change, um, you know, and, and try to support people to take any step that they're willing to take <laughs> in that direction. Uh, I think that um, one of the things is it's fantastic to now have more of this important starch, this important resource. Um, something that comes to mind for me personally, as somebody who grew up here, I didn't have ulu in my diet. Mm. And I think sometime, or for some people, and by that I mean me, um, it might be a little intimidating to introduce something that you know mm. is good for you into your diet because you might not know how to prepare it. You get this ulu and it's like, okay, Okay, what do I do now? So <laughs> I know that efforts are being made to help um, people bring it back into their diet. And, and what, how do you see that moving along forward from here? Yeah. No, I mean, I do think it's one of the, the best things people can do. You know, the, the stickers that came out of the co-op, or they simply say, eat more ulu. <laughs> um, it's a great thing that, that can be done by, by everyone. Um, but like you say, it's hard. It's really hard to change your diet, you know, and, and even me and my wife who, you know, had been working with Ulu for, for you know, a decade now, um, it was a really long, slow change. You know, I mean, I grew up on, on rice, <laughs> um, you know, and still that's kind of my comfort starch, you know, but, you know, the more you do it, um, the easier it becomes. Mm -hmm. The more you do it, the more you learn about how to prepare it. And it becomes easier to prepare. Uh, you learn more ways to prepare it, and it becomes more ono, you know. Um, and then, you know, the biggest one, of course, is the the intergenerational. You know, I mean, I always go to rice because I grew up on rice, um, and it's really enheartening to me now is that you know our kids are are growing up on on different starches, you know, and more varied starches than I grew up on, and. They're eating infinitely more ulu than I did as a kid because I didn't have ulu as a kid, hardly ever. Yeah, me you know? neither. Yeah. Maybe a certain party here and there, but mm -hmm. I didn't prepare it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's been a really fun journey. You know, as part of our work, we've got to host uh, um, students from like Papua New Guinea and Samoa and places, and they come and show us a whole new way to prepare it, you know, and it's like, oh my God, it's delicious. It's so good. And yeah, it's been really fun, you know, and just learning and, and, um, and yeah, through that learning, just really realizing that there's, there's other ways, right? There's so many other ways we can live our life. And um, we really get locked into to the status quo, right? We get locked into this is what, this is how it is. This is what it is. And, and it's not, <laughs> you know, we can change it and, um, and we should. 
So Noah, for those of us are in our audience who are listening and interested and would like to be involved in all of these aspects of ulu and agroforestry and agroecology, do you have any kind of specific recommendations about how they could enter into this mm. exciting realm? Or incorporate into their lives. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think eat local is a big one. Um, you know, really get to know your local farmers and, and what they're doing and, and support people who are engaged in the practices that, you know, that are engaged with land, um, that are thinking about, um, you know, the broader impacts of what we do. Can also always eat more ulu. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh yeah. You know, today is sustainability, food, um, sovereignty. You know, all these hot topics. You know, they're they're not really new. Our our kupuna show us this. Like it wasn't, um, it wasn't a choice. Mm. We today, like you said, we we choose. Oh well, I don't have to do all that hard work because I can go to Starbucks or I can go to the supermarket, and people don't make that connection that if we continue along this path. Um, you know, then we all have to eat fake products or whatever, you know, like manufactured food items, you know. So how can I, I lost my question in there somewhere. Sorry, I went off on my own little tangent there. <laughs> but I guess the main idea is that um, part of this show is talking about or or this podcast is talking about continuing traditional practices in a sustainable matter, mm. manner. And um, agroecology and agroforestry doesn't end on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't stop for the weekend. You know, this this mm. is a way of life, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's that building the relationship. So how can how can we all be part of that solution? Or I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say the best thing you can do is is you know plant the tree. Um, you know, that one tree, you know, can be enough to feed your ohana for the next, you know, next generation. Um, but if you can't plant the tree, um, yeah, next best thing is to, to you know, support that local production, um, you know, support people engaged in these practices. Uh, go eat more ulu. And uh, yeah, if you want to learn more about about breadfruit um, or place of where you can get it um, or learn how to grow it, learn how to access it, uh, learn recipes of how to cook it. You can go to eatbreadfruit.com, check out the Ulu Co-op, and they got a lot of great things on there for, for you to dive deeper. Mahalo nui. Yeah, mahalo noa. I feel like we've learned so much um, about this about this subject from you today. It's very informative, lots of information that we need to process and you know related to our landscapes but also you know the the styles of life that we choose to have and our future you know linking it with our past so yeah i I love what you've shared mahalo nui thank you it's very generous mahalo nui to our mea kipa noah kekueva lincoln we all learned so much i i appreciate what noah shared Food sovereignty and food sustainability are such hot topics today, but we see that these were truly mana'u Hawaii and part of day-to-day life. There was no alternative. You had to implement Pono practices. Survival depended on it. This still applies today. Yes, 
and we can all derive inspiration from this mana'o and such practices. Mahalo to our listeners for joining us today on Kaleo Kauluau. And don't forget to check out our blog at hilo.hawaii.edu slash where you'll find our awesome story maps and also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to learn more. We're also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other podcast platforms. Until next time, Ahui ho. Aloha. Aloha.